All right, hello, Homestead listening audience. This is uh, Pastor Jeff Kerr from Homestead Church, and uh, for the second week in a row, I am talking directly to you, the millions of podcast and online listeners out there, because once again, for the second week in a row, we had a technical glitch with our recording equipment during the service, or user error, or whatever it is, so clearly it's a problem that needs to be fixed, and in the church world, it's a leadership problem, so I would love it if they offered, um, in addition to conferences for church leaders on vision casting and leadership development and ministry excellence, that they just simply offered a how to record a sermon um, consistently, but we'll, we'll figure that out. That's a, that's a problem for another day. Glad you're listening today. I am speaking to an empty room live, but uh, talking to you through your listening device today. We are starting a new series. Um, we had a great previous series called Out of the Pit, talking about anxiety and depression. Had a great response from the community for that. We're starting something brand new today, and uh, we're calling this Rebuilding. Rebuilding. And we're going to work through the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Some great books, kind of near the beginning-ish of the Old Testament, maybe kind of closer to the middle of the Old Testament. Um, books that uh, that come at a time where the nation of Israel is at a low point and uh, in the midst of disaster and exile and details that we'll get into a little bit later in this message. In the midst of that, God steps in and says, all right, uh, this season is over. Let's rebuild. Let's start again. Let's, let's move forward. Let's get you back to your homeland. Let's rebuild the nation. Let's rebuild the people, the great nation of Israel. And so that's what we are talking about today. As we get started, I want to ask you a question um, that gets asked a lot in kind of a surfacey, shallow area or a surfacey, shallow way, especially in Minnesota. So in Minnesota, you will have interactions with people at the store. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? How are things? How's life? I'm fine. How are, how's life? And then usually in Minnesota, um, it'll be followed up with the, well, the weather sure is nice today. It sure is cold today. We love to talk about the weather. I think that's mostly out of, uh, we don't really know what to say after we ask the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? We at Homestead Church, we share a building with a Methodist congregation. And uh, they meet here before us on Sunday morning. So after their service is done, we come in and set up for our service. And there's some overlap time. And this lovely Methodist congregation, um, the, other, the other Sunday, uh, it was a beautiful fall day in Minnesota. So I must have heard, nice weather, lovely weather today, isn't it? That was kind of the standard greeting at church. And so we love to kind of talk about these things on a surface level, but I want to ask that question on a deeper level. How are you? How is your life? How would you describe your life? So whatever you're doing right now, just think about that for a minute. When you think about your life as a whole, kind of on the next level deeper than just surface, I'm fine, thanks, how's your life? How are things? Well, how would you describe your life? Would you say it's pleasant? Would you say it's filled with conflict? Maybe you would just simply say it's routine kind of the same thing. I'm just kind of going through the same thing over and over again. You would say maybe it's comfortable or safe. Um, some of you would say it's overwhelming, especially if you are in the phase of life where you have small kids or you are trying to balance home life and work life and it can feel overwhelming. Maybe you would say it's a struggle. Maybe you would say it's great, smooth sailing. Or maybe you would say it was lonely or sad. 
Whatever words, I want you to think about your life because we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit today. What is going on in your life and what is the life that God would love to have built in you? That's what we're going to look at in this series. Um, So I want us to think about that main thought. God is at work. He is building and rebuilding. In the same way, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, he stepped into the nation of Israel and said, we're not done. We're going to build. We're going to rebuild. We're going to move forward. He wants to do that great work in his people, including me and you. He wants to do that work. You may have never viewed God like this, that he wants to build in you and refine you and rebuild things in you, that he has a plan for you. So really, as we start this series and throughout this series, I want you to be open to that main idea, that main idea that God has a plan for you. He wants to build something in you. So as you look at your life and those words that you used to describe it, start thinking now about, okay, what needs to change? What needs to be rebuilt? What needs to be torn down and rebuilt? Um, This is the work that God wants to do in you. And this is the work that we see throughout Scripture. God does in all the great characters, all the great heroes of the faith that we read about in the Bible. All of these people are flawed people. You don't have to read too far into the story of Abraham or Moses or Joseph or David or Solomon or the Apostle Paul or any of the disciples Um, You don't have to read very far into the story to realize, wow, these are flawed people. These are not perfect people. But time and time again, God intervenes um, with these seemingly regular people and says, I know you're messed up. I know your life is messed up, but I have a plan for you. So let's get to work. In you, I want to build godly character. I want to build a strong faith, a life that trusts in me, your God, a life that is devoted to God. And those people in Scripture, and I hope it would be the same for you and me today, they simply opened themselves up to God's plan. They simply just opened themselves up. They simply just said yes to God. And then they took steps of faith when God asked them to. They obeyed in areas that God asked them to. They trusted him enough to obey when he asked them to take a step of faith and to keep moving forward. And God not only formed a solid faith in them, solid character in them, but used them to accomplish great world-changing things, things that impacted nations and people and eternity. God did that in these people's lives, and he wants to do the same thing in us. And this really is what the Christian life is all about. It's not just a one-time decision in a church service to raise a hand and say, well, now I'm a Christian. Pastor said, raise your hand if you want to be a Christian, so I raised my hand, and now I'm a Christian. That's a great moment. That's an important decision. But Christian life is not just about that. That's the starting point. And from there, it's a lifelong journey to be open to God building something in you. So when you think about not only your life, but your faith, your faith journey, your faith story, what does that mean to you? What does being a Christian mean to you? In our world, it means any number of things to any number of people. Unfortunately, there are people around the world who never hear about Jesus. They don't know anything about Jesus. Um, And that's something as a church we want to be a part of, sending people and going ourselves and making sure that people who never heard about Jesus, that they hear about Jesus. Some people hear about Jesus, hear about faith, but they never, ever open up. 
Some have a very, what I would call a safe version of faith, almost like a garnish, um, like a, a salt shaker. They, they have their life, their life is fine, and now they have this faith in Jesus. So what they're going to do is just kind of keep their life as is and then just sprinkle a little Jesus on everything and help it to feel better, help life to be just a little bit better. I'm going to kind of run my own life still, but I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus here and there, and that's going to, we think, going to make our life more fulfilling and better. And that really is just scratching the surface of what God wants to do. Some people have a moment when they decide to become a Christian, and then they wonder, well, what now? After I've raised my hand at camp or in a church service, what now? What, is this, what difference does this mean? And that's where discipleship comes in. But some people don't really know how to live now. How do they just think, well, now am I supposed to go to church and just try to be a better person? And they're not really sure what difference this faith makes in their life. And I bet there are some listening to my voice right now that that would describe your faith. You know you made a decision to follow Jesus, but you don't really know what difference that makes in your life. Some people have their lives rocked by a tragedy. Something catastrophic happens, and that causes people to turn to God. We see that on a national level, on a national tragedy. The nation seems to be more receptive to God and turns to God. also happens individually. If you go through something really tough, if you find out it's a cancer diagnosis or a marriage has fallen apart or a kid is struggling, you all of a sudden are more open to God. But then what happens if circumstances improve... The tragedy improves. Things smooth out. Well, then we tend to turn back to our regular life and we wander back away from God. So whatever stage of faith you're in, however you would describe your Christian life, God is saying to each of us, no matter what stage you're in, okay, let's go. Let's build. Let's rebuild what is broken. Let's keep moving forward. Let's build a solid foundation of faith and godly character in you. God is saying to each of us today, I have plans for you. I want to build a new life in you, a life of peace, victory, of mercy and forgiveness, a life that will not be spent just coasting through and passing time, not just going through the routine, but one that will be transformed one that will have an impact in the world, one that will bring hope and light not only to our lives but to the others around us, a life that flourishes, that is defined by strength, that is anchored in him in the midst of whatever storm we go through. This is the life that God wants to build in each of us. That sounds pretty great. When you think about how your life is and how you'd like it to be, those are the things that describe how I want my life to be, all those things that God wants to do in me. And you might be feeling the same way I am. But we have to acknowledge, is this going to be easy? It will not be easy. There will be opposition. There will be times where God asks us to do some difficult work, to take a seemingly difficult step, an anxious step of faith. But we know that God has a plan. We know that he is working. We don't have to do this and accomplish this on ourself, on our, in ourselves. We just simply have to participate in the work that God is doing in us and wants to do in us. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, God speaks to his people. God speaks to his people in the midst of exile, in the midst of chaos. They were a nation 
And then they were exiled, and the nation of Israel was taken over, and then the people of Israel were scattered around the empire at the time, some of whom were serving in the courts of the king, some were a slave labor, and everything in between. But they were no longer united as a nation. And this is when God steps in and says, okay, let's rebuild. I know it seems like this is the end for the Israelites, and if, they were, if you were an Israelite at this time, you would have thought, this is it, God's done with us. There's no hope for anything better. But God was saying to them, it's just getting started. Let's build. Let's rebuild again. So to kind of understand a little bit more about what was going on in Ezra and Nehemiah, we got to give a little history. Okay? And since uh, this is the online audience, um, I'm not under any time crunch today, so I can talk as long as I want. But lest you're feeling a little anxious and you're about to turn off your listening device right now, I want to give you some reassurance. We're not going to go all the way back to Genesis and start at Genesis. We are going to start in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, which maybe, not, maybe won't help all that much. Um, in Exodus, the story is the Israelites are in Egypt, and they have become slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh is ruling over them. The, Isra the Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians. And God steps in because he, his whole plan is to build the nation of Israel into a strong nation of people that depend on him, that are his people, that he is building his character and having that close relationship with them. So God steps in and sends Moses and says to the Pharaoh, you've got to let the Israelites go. You've got to let them go. And Pharaoh refuses. And you know the story, the plagues come and the Israelites escape through the Red Sea. And they get to the point, they go through the desert, and they get to the point where they're at the border of the promised land. They're looking across the Jordan River into the promised land, and they're about to go in and take the land that God has given them, to take the land that will cause them to be a free people, a people with God in relationship with them, with God providing for them. This was it. They look over and they see a land that is perfect. The Bible refers to it as a land flowing in milk and honey. And I think about flowing milk. Honey's okay, but flowing milk, I think of, and I don't think I would like that. But apparently back then, flowing milk was awesome. And I suppose if it was like ice cold, 2% milk, you know, flowing down the milk glacier, that sort of thing. Put that on my cereal, on my, on my frosted mini-wheats. That sounds awesome. But when I think flowing milk, I think like lakes of warm, whole milk. And that just doesn't appeal to me. But for whatever reason, now that's an aside, um, for whatever reason, this was something the Israelites looked at and said, this is the promised land. But there on the border, as they were about to go in, they questioned God. The leaders, most of the leadership, save a couple of individuals, questioned God, and their obedience was waning, and their devotion to him was waning. And God looked at them and said, I am not starting out this whole nation, this whole people thing with this generation that wishes they were back in Egypt that is already doubting me. So God caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years before they would enter the promised land. They wandered in the desert for 40 years where they learned to trust in God. He allowed them to wander for 40 years until that generation of leaders that had doubted God had all died off. Then 40 years later, and that takes us kind of the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So the, la the first five books of the Old Testament, that's the storyline of the nation of Israel. Up until then, they've 
come out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert. God has given them the law, the Ten Commandments, and now at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God says, okay, now it's time. And the book of Joshua begins, where Joshua is their leader, and he's going to lead them into the promised land. And they go in, and they conquer the Canaanites, and they drive them out, and they are established as a nation. And God says, I want to build you into a great people. I want you to obey me, and things are going to go well. And things do go well, and God uh, is leading and guiding them. And eventually the Israelites, they want a king. And so God gives them the desire of their heart, and they have a king. And the first king is Samuel. And Samuel is a great example of looking at an earthly person and saying, well, that guy looks like a great king. He was a man's man. He was a, the Bible says he was a foot taller than everybody else, and he was all muscle and hair. I mean, he was just a man's man. But he led the people away from God. He had evil in his heart. He was offering sacrifices that were not acceptable to God. So God removed him as their king. Next was David. David was awesome. David, they were, <laughs> he was not uh, on, in earthly appearance as the, as the great king. You know, the, the mistake they made with Saul, they maybe overcorrected with David. The Bible says he was a harp player. And at first, when they were looking at all the eligible men to be king, they didn't even think of David. They didn't even look at him because they kind of forgot he was there. But that's not to say he was kind of weenie, you know, weenie musician guy. This guy was also man's man. He killed a bear with his own hands. This isn't like hunting today where you get up in a tree and you sit in your tree loft and you make noises with deer antlers and you have scents that attract and bait that attracts the deer and you just sit there for one to walk by and you pop it with your rifle. No, this was like for real, take out a bear with his bare hands kind of man card kind of thing. And David was an awesome, great king for Israel. He was righteous. God used him. He led the people to be devoted to God. Israel during this season with David as their king was victorious and prosperous. And then David uh, after David, Solomon was the king, a wise king, and he built the temple, and the nation was so prosperous. And after Solomon became, was king, um, the kingdom split. There was kind of a struggle for the throne, and two people, each with a large following, claimed that they were the king of Israel. And so the kingdom split, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had evil king after evil king. And in the year 722 B.C., God had finally had enough with their evil ways. He allowed them to get taken over by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the ruling powerful empire in that time. And they took down all the Israelites and they basically took them out of Israel, their northern kingdom, and spread them all over the empire. And uh, some of them, like I said, became slaves and they were you know, scattered. They were no longer a nation. Well, the southern kingdom had a few good kings mixed in there. They fared a little bit better, but they also had evil kings that would turn the nation towards idolatry, that would turn it towards idol worship and away from God. So 136 years later, they are conquered, not by the Assyrians, but now the Babylonians are the ruling empires. The Babylonian empire came in, wiped out the Assyrian empire, and now they're the ruling power. So now Israel is scattered around the Babylonian Empire. Um, they are slaves. They are servants. Um, and that brings us kind of to the end of the book of Second Chronicles, if you're kind of following along in the table of contents in your Old Testament. The end of Second Chronicles, that's kind of where the storyline is going. 
Now, much of the rest of the Old Testament centers around this season of exile, the years leading up to the fall of Israel and the years that the Israelites were living in exile, both in Assyria and Babylon. You know, when you read the stories of, like in the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, all these stories happened during the years where they were exiled in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the king was the king of Babylon. Jeremiah 29.11, a great verse that we um, quote a lot in, in, in our faith, says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Now that is a, a common verse, a kind of a soundbite verse that you would see like on any graduation card that you get in a Christian graduation party. A lot of them are going to say 29:11 Jeremiah 29:11 for I know the plans I have for you. It's a great verse, but a lot of the book of Jeremiah, he was a prophet of God during those years of exile. During those years when the Israelites were captured. And so that chapter, Jeremiah 29, is written while the Israelites are exiled in Babylon. Now, that context brings that verse to a whole new light to me. And the surrounding verses, the verses leading up to it, Jeremiah is speaking as the prophet. He's speaking for God. And God is saying, I know that disaster has come to you. And this is not going to be a short-lived disaster There is going to be 70 years that pass, and you are going to be exiled in Babylon. And then he says the words in Jeremiah 29, 11, after he says, but I'm going to come, and I'm going to rebuild, and we're going to rebuild, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. This is the context that that verse is in. This is where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come in. Two books happening at that same time. At the end of this season of exile is where these books are written. I have a couple verses. We're going to focus mainly in the book of Ezra in this mess, or in the book of Nehemiah in this message. But I wanted to read you a few verses right out of the start of Ezra. This is how Ezra begins in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, Persia is now the ruling empire at the time. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So I love that. That's kind of God stepping in and bringing an end to this season of exile. Now, what I find so striking in that first verse is it says, in order to fill, fulfill, sorry, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of the king of Persia. Think about that. This is the ruler of the empire that was ruling over the Israelites, and the Lord moved his heart. Now, we're going to take a little side note here just for a minute and just talk about that idea that God turned the heart of the king who was opposed to the Israelites. Now, he turned the king's heart to be in favor of the Israelites to go back and rebuild. 
God turned the heart of the king. God turned the heart of the ruler. Now, I mention that to say this. Depending on when you're listening to this, right now we are in, and you might not be aware of this, but in the USA, we're in the midst of election season. And we're about three minutes, or three minutes, I wish, three minutes, three weeks away from election day. And uh, I know you're saying, wow, that seems like it snuck up on us. The last 16 months has just flown by. But this particular election season has been pretty high anxiety, particularly for a lot of people of faith that I know. Now, I'm a Canadian, and I know some of you get nervous when people talk about politics. And my wife, if she were in the room right now, would be nervous that I'm talking politics to my millions of listeners right now. I'm just kidding. I don't, don't, don't think there's millions. Um, the anxiety level has been high leading up to this election. But this story is a reminder and an encouragement for us that God is always at work and he is not hindered by governments and world leaders. He simply changes the heart of the rulers. When he wants the ruler to think a different thing, he changes their heart. He is sovereign. He can change hearts. This coming election in the United States will not and cannot thwart the plans of God. His kingdom moves forward. The winner of this election is not going to hinder God moving. So for the next three weeks, I want to encourage you, whatever side of the political aisle you are on, and it seems like everybody's on one side or the other this time around, whatever side you're on, be involved, pray, and vote. But let's allow the peace of God to reign in our hearts. As people of God, we should be leading the way with peace. We should be leading the way with a strong assurance that we know it's going to be okay, that God is sovereign, that God can bring leaders into place, that God brings about circumstances for a much higher purpose than we can recognize, that God can turn the heart of the king, that God can turn the heart of our leaders in this country. And as another thing, I believe that more change is going to come to this country not when we get the right combination of political forces, but when more and more Christians open themselves up to the rebuilding and transforming work of God in them and through them. More change is going to come to this country when Christians open themselves up to what God wants to change in them, and then that is going to spread, and the life and light and victory and triumph that Jesus has given us is going to spread to others, and it's going to spread to others. This is the way the gospel is designed to work, and that is when we will see change. That's when we will see the culture change. And one final thing on politics, in case you're all just getting sick of me talking about politics, I believe that our words and our behavior leading up to Election Day will affect how receptive people will be when we talk about our faith after Election Day. Okay, How we respond pre-election, how we behave pre-election, will affect how people listen to us talk about our faith once the election is over and all of the Trump mind-controlling robots are unleashed on humanity. All right, So be mindful of how you are behaving pre-election. And be filled with peace and assurance that God is sovereign. There is a bigger picture than this election. There is a bigger kingdom that we are devoted to. 
there is a bigger rebuilding work that God is doing. So just consider that your friendly Canadian encouragement today. All right, back to the book of Ezra. Ezra, those first verses, God turns the heart of the king, and the people return to Jerusalem to start to rebuild. Some of them to start to rebuild the temple. But then what happens is there's new rulers and new authorities, and there's new opposition. So the work kind of stops. It gets, it gets started, but then the work stops, which brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I know I've only got a few minutes left, but I wanted to read some verses from Nehemiah chapter 1, and I wanted to point out a couple of things from that today. So we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. It's 11 verses. Nehemiah chapter 1 says this, the words of Nehemiah, son of of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, a lot of, you know, historical data there, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is questioning his brother, saying, how are the people doing, the ones that returned from exile and went back to rebuild? How's it going? And it continues, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said this, Lord, The God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And we acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he throws in this little extra detail at the very end of chapter 1. I was cupbearer to the king, which is kind of an interesting way he wraps up that prayer he was praying that moment. Um, But I find that interesting because Nehemiah was not one of the slave labor living the difficult life that a lot of the Israelites were. He was in the king's court. He was in the king's palace. He was the cupbearer to the king, one of the king's right-hand men, living a pretty smooth sailing, easy life, except for the one thing that he had to taste the wine and the food before the king would get it in case somebody had poisoned it, and then he would die before the king would eat it. So that, that part's not so great. But other than that, things were smooth sailing. So Nehemiah wasn't in a really dire situation just looking for any excuse to get out of there. But when he heard about Jerusalem, when he heard what was going on in Jerusalem, he wept. 
he wept. And that's the first thing I want to point out from the first chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wept, and for days he prayed and fasted. He acknowledged that things were broken. He acknowledged the sin of him and his family and the nation of Israel. He recognized, though, that God wanted to do the work. He recognized that there was promises hundreds of years ago where God said, if you return to me, I'm going to come and we're going to rebuild. And so he was saying, God, do that. I know you want to rebuild. He recognized that. So that's the first thing is he wept. And the second thing he, he recognized was that the walls around the city needed to be rebuilt. He heard that the walls were down, and that's what really grieved him. He saw the walls down or heard about the walls being down, and this is what grieved him. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? The walls are down. Certainly the temple or some of the other things in the city would be more important to rebuild. But back then, you know, today we don't really care if our city, our city of Farmington, doesn't have a wall around it. It's not a big concern. But back then, a city without a wall, this was so important because a city without a wall was a city that could not control its own affairs. A city without a wall was at the mercy of any enemy. It was defenseless. It would be a city that could be dictated by outside forces whenever those outside forces decided to march in. There's a verse in Proverbs 25, verse 28. It says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What a great analogy. But that idea of a city without walls... The writer of that proverb says it's like a person who is just without self-control. It's like a city without walls. They can just be conquered at any moment. They are always on the defensive. They are defenseless. They just cannot control any circumstances because they don't have walls built up. So as we start this series, I want to point out those two things, that Nehemiah wept and acknowledged that things were broken, and that he wanted to rebuild the city wall. And I want to ask you that. I, I'm wondering if you're listening to this and that describes your life. Maybe these words describe some of you. Living like a broken down city with no walls. Defenseless. No clear direction. No clear path. Easily defeated by any enemy that comes along. I want to encourage you with this. That God is still doing the rebuilding today. And all it's going to take are some Nehemiahs to recognize when things are broken. To recognize my life is broken. To recognize there is no life here. Things are in a shambles. The walls are down. My life is constantly being conquered by enemies. I am in exile. I am at the end of the road, it seems. And not only recognize that things are broken, but... What we need are some Nehemiahs to recognize that God wants to rebuild. He wants you to turn to him and begin the rebuilding process. So the main point is today, what does God want to rebuild in you? In you. It's easy to look at others and say, well, I know what God wants to rebuild in them. It's easy to look at our nation and our leaders and say, well, clearly this is what God needs to rebuild in them. But what does God want to rebuild in you? What does God want to rebuild in you? What is God saying to you that this is broken down, this needs repair, this isn't working, this is not right, this is broken? What does God want to rebuild? 
The first step is recognizing what is broken. Nehemiah wept when he saw what was broken. We need to have that moment where we break and we confess to God, this is not right. It needs to be rebuilt. As an illustration to this, I was thinking about a car that I used to own. When I was in college, I owned a 1977 Volkswagen Rabbit. Orange. I call it racing orange, but it was really just orange and rust. Um, I was, this was like in 1995, so this car was old and uh, at the time. Had a few things wrong with it, but I loved this car. The speedometer did not work. The gas gauge did not work. It was a four-speed stick shift. I'm not sure that all four speeds worked. Um, if you got stuck in traffic, there was something wrong with the fan or the whatever it was. If you got stuck in traffic too long, it would overheat and die. And you'd have to wait for about a half an hour for it to cool down, and then you could drive again. The battery, the brackets that hold the battery in place had all rusted away. So the battery would kind of just slide around. And at certain moments, it would hit a certain angle where it would short out and the whole car would die. So if you're driving over like a railroad track where there's a bump, the car would just die, which brings up obvious safety concerns with railroad tracks and spontaneous cars stopping. But, um, you know, all these things were wrong with it. But I loved this car. And I think I had just gotten used to it. I would know how much gas I could put in the tank, and I would know from the odometer how many miles I could go before it would be empty. Um, I knew how to work some of the things that didn't work. Um, I knew the car could not go over 60 miles an hour, so I was never really at risk of speeding on the highway, even though the speedometer didn't work. There was all these things that were busted. There was holes in the back seat so that, or on the floor, and so water would come in and collect on the floor of the back seat. So I never really noticed all these things. I had just gotten used to them until I started dating Christy. Um, and then we went out on a date, and I picked her up in this car, and she looked at this car with that look of, like, what is this? This car is a piece of junk. And, uh, and then she went to put on her seatbelt, which had been sitting in kind of a collection of water in the floor of the back seat, and uh, put it on and got this big, like, muddy, wet stain on her sweater. <laughs> and so it was then that my eyes began to be opened to the state of disrepair that this car was in. Like a worn-down city of Jerusalem, this, this orange rabbit was that city. Um, and there really was no hope. And so uh, it took that moment of this girl that I liked who would become my wife one day that I started to recognize this is broken. Now, I use that as an illustration to say some of us have things in our lives that are broken that we've just gotten used to. We think, you know what, I can just get by with this. I can just endure this. Um, I figured out a, a, a short-term fix for this. And we need to get past that and not get used to the things that are broken, but get past that point to where we recognize this is not right. This needs to be rebuilt. I confess this to God, and I'm going to ask God to rebuild this. So what is broken in your life that you have just gotten used to? What does God want to rebuild? Have that moment of confession. Maybe right now or sometime this week, confession is at the heart of a relationship with God. Confess your sins. Confess what is broken. There has to be a turning point in all of us where we say, this life, the way I'm running it, is not working anymore, and we turn to God and we give it to God. So have that moment of confession. It might be the first time you've confessed your sins to God or you've confessed your need of God. But let's do that this week. Maybe even right now, have that moment of confession.
Just ask God, what is broken in me? Maybe this week, I would, I would encourage you this week over the, never, the next few days, just spend some time reading the book of Nehemiah. And as you do, spend some time praying and just every day ask, God, what is broken in me that you want to rebuild? What is broken that I've just gotten used to and is something that you want to rebuild? And then I just encourage you over the next few weeks, begin to say yes when God asks you to do something. Begin to say yes when you sense that God wants to rebuild something, remove something, refine something. It is so amazing that the God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth can speak something uniquely to your heart right now as you're listening to this about something that needs to be rebuilt, something that needs to be removed or refined. I encourage you to say yes. Don't just coast through life. Don't just endure the things that are broken. Say yes to God. Say yes to God. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into more detail of the book of Nehemiah. But for now, take a couple of days and ask God, what do you want to rebuild in me? And I'm praying that God would open your eyes to the life that he wants to have built in you. And I'm praying that you would have the courage to say yes to God no matter what he asks you to do. There is an amazing life, a great life, a victorious peace and joy-filled life awaiting you as you say yes to God and allow him to rebuild your heart. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for those who are listening to this, that they would be receptive to you, that you would reveal things that you want to change. Thank you that you are building in each of us a strong foundation of faith and love and joy, a triumphant, victorious life that is dependent on you because you are all we need. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.